So one of the things that is so difficult about stress, like the coronavirus, is that it makes us feel powerless, that the uncertainty, the lack of predictability is overwhelming, and it can really disrupt our ability to manage our emotions. But we need to be able to manage our emotions in order to be able to be effective as parents. I'm Nicole Holcomb, attorney by day and podcaster by night a former educator, school counselor, and administrator, and mom to a nine-year-old daughter with dyslexia. She absolutely loves all things Harry Potter, Minecraft, and science. A few years ago, she was identified with dyslexia, and our life seemed to turn upside down for a while, quite literally. I created the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast to help you navigate the upside-down journey of dyslexia. Have I told you lately you got this? If you're wanting to thrive as a mom in the dyslexia journey, then you are in the right place. Let's get started. Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of the Dyslexia Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Holcomb. Thank you so much for listening. I know you have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts, and the fact that you chose to listen in today means the world to me. So thanks again for being here. Today, we're continuing our back to school mini series, Thriving This School Year. We have a special guest today, Dr. Abigail Gewertz. She's sharing her work on understanding stress and her new book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. She is a mom, a child psychologist, and has spent most of her career working with families who are going through stress. Don't worry, I'll include a link to Dr. Gewertz's website and all the ways you can connect with her in the show notes. You can get the show notes at dyslexiamomlife.com. After you listen to the episode, you can grab a copy of the Back to School Survival Guide for Moms to set you up to thrive this school year. Listen first and then grab the freebie. The link to the freebie is in the episode description and on the website, dyslexiamomlife.com. I won't make you wait any longer. Let's meet Dr. Abby. Well, hi, Dr. Abby. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being part of our Back to School mini-series. I did a longer introduction of you in kind of the intro, but for those of you that don't yet know you and your wonderful work, can you introduce yourself to our audience today? Sure. Nicole, first of all, it's a treat to be on. Thanks for having me. Um, I am a mother of four and a child psychologist, and I'm also a researcher where I study um, and mainly study ways that we can support families who are under stress. That's, you know, and it, and it seems like right now that is such needed, right? It's so needed. It's, there's so many uncertainties right now. And I know for you, I know we don't live in the same state or the same location, but it's amazing. Just everybody's having to be so flexible right now. I mean, schools here locally in Atlanta are starting and things look very different. Some are hundred percent virtual. Some are doing two days in the class, two days virtual. Uh, my daughter's school is going to be face to face in two weeks. And so, you know, it, it really is uh, the, when the world feels like a scary place, it's just, I know you didn't pick the timing, but it couldn't be better timing to have published your book right now. And so I love the, uh, out of the gate, right? I love the very first part where chapter one really is the perfect title, right? Parents matter now more than ever. I mean, 
Yeah, wow. it's it's a it's a really hard time, and I did not predict there was going to be a pandemic when I started writing the book. <laughs> right, I did not. I could not have predicted it. And then some people have asked me whether I started writing the book when the pandemic hit. No, I didn't. <laughs> I started writing the book. I write this in the book at the epilogue. I started writing the book in 2016 where it seemed to me, I mean, it seemed then that the world was becoming a bit of a scary place. Mm. And I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a parent of very young children. My kids were already teens by 2016. I tried to imagine what it would be like to be a parent of very young children in the midst of a very acrimonious election, a lot of division around things like immigration, increased awareness of um, school shootings and the need for lockdown drills and then climate change and severe weather events. And I just felt it was time to write a book to help parents figure out how to talk about these things with their kids. Right. And, and I love the title, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. I mean, what, what went through your mind when you said, yeah, that's the title? Like, that just makes sense. Was it just a culmination of everything that was going on in the world? Or had you always kind of had that book title in mind? Or I hadn't always had the book title in mind. So I'm an academic and we're very understated normally. We don't like <laughs> sassy titles or, you know, even something that's <laughs> a bit more uh, daring or even, should I say, straightforward simple to understand. <laughs> right. But it became increasingly clear that the world can, to many families can really feel like a scary place. And I have just a funny, a funny story, which was um, I, <laughs> Twitter had a competition at the end of 2016 to describe 2016 in three words. And one Twitter user wrote worst period year period ever. And I actually <laughs> wrote that in the book. Well, of course, I would do that over. Definitely wasn't the worst year ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I love that when I was, you know, it's like almost every page is like, yes, yes, that makes sense. And so my background is actually in education. I used to be a school counselor. So I've worked a lot with families as well before I went to law school. And so it, it is, and everybody is so different how they react to things. And I love that you gave some very practical guidelines, but let's start, but let's go back. Let's start at the beginning, which is as parents, we have to know what is our stressors. And so you talk about that in the book about how do you identify your stress? Why do you feel like that's an important place to start? Well, I think the best way to talk about it is, and I think every parent will understand this, is that every child and the younger the child, the more obvious it is, Every child sees the world through the bubble of their family. Mm -hmm. So we're born into a family and the family is our first experience of other people. And we know I'm a psychologist, so I know a lot about what parents, parents and kids mm -hmm. and parents give two gifts to their kids. One is the genetic gifts. So your child, if it's your biological child, is half of you and half of your partner or spouse. But we also give um, gifts of the environment. So the family that we're brought up in, the kind of parenting I practice, of course, siblings, things like that. So, so these are the two gifts that we give. Now, both in genetics and in environment, we influence the way our kids see the world. And the world, the, our children see the world similarly to the way we see the world. So if we are upset by something that happens. 
really close call with a hurricane or a tornado in my case, Mm -hmm. or um, someone who's very close to us who gets sick with a coronavirus, where we have to think about mortality and it's very, very frightening. Or if we're just generally an anxious person, we can be pretty sure that that's gonna affect our children. And we won't be able to help our kids with their scary things unless we can get a handle on our own scary things. Um, and so, so, for, so, so one example is, you know, sometimes as parents, when we're distracted or preoccupied by something that's bothering us and our kids come in and go, hey, mom, we can be, we get grouchy <laughs> or we mm-hmm. jump on them or we get overly protective. And that's not because of them, that's because of us. So what I'm saying is let's get our own house in order or as the flight attendants would say, put your own mask on before assisting others. Right. And I know one of the pieces you talked about too from that piece is that we have to also identify what our parenting values look like. And so as we think about what what is our stressors for, for you and your partner, you have to also think about how do I react to stress, but also where do you get your parenting values from? And, you know, what's ironic about, I, I was telling someone this the other day, you know, when you, when you leave, uh, let's say from buying a car, you get a manual, but when you leave the hospital, they just hand you this little bundle of joy and your parents before you probably didn't give you a book like yours to say, here's how to have some essential conversations. And so when I was reading the piece about parenting values, I thought, wow, you know, I've never really sat down and pieced that apart as to how is that impacting the way I parent. Right. No one gives us a manual. Um, you know, I need, I, my, my dog is sitting right here and um, I, I need a license to own a dog. Right. I don't need any license to parent. But, but more than that, parenting takes up, it takes up a lot of our lives. Just the day-to-day, getting the kids fed and clothed, homework done, carting them to and from activities if they're involved, all these kinds of everyday things that I think like most parents, you know, you said I didn't think about values. I didn't either until I got into this work because we're so busy in the day to day that to take a step back, I mean, who has time to take a step back and say, if I think forward 20 or 30 years, what do I want my kids to be saying about what I taught them? And yet, if you ask any one of us, I think every one of us would say, are there things we want to teach our kids? Of course there are. So in that exercise to derive parenting values, which I have to say is one of my favorite exercises. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, really, I want to give parents an opportunity to do that, to think forward about what it is, what's their legacy for their kids. Mm Mm-hmm. And as we think about, um, you know, what that looks like and, and, and we struggle, I'll just say struggle with the day-to-day of the pandemic and the pieces about, um, you know, just, there's just so much, there's politics, there's just so much going on around us. There's injustice. There's just so much we're trying to figure out as adults, um, our daughter's pretty young. She's nine. She's going into fourth grade. And so, you know, trying to balance all those pieces as to when to say what and, and what to talk about. But even as we think about our day-to-day situations, especially with the pandemic, we just don't really know what it's going to look like in a month or a week or six months from now. So 
I give that as an example because that's current, right? But it could really be any kind of stressor. Maybe it's that your job situation changes or you have a death in your family or someone's in a wreck or it could be a, a number of things. It could be just the opposite. It could be maybe you got a promotion to something that you weren't expecting and you don't really know what to expect from that. And you do, a, I think, a fantastic job talking about having strategies to stay calm in stressful situations. So once you're able to identify, okay, I'm having a certain emotion as the adult and I'm, okay, how do I respond? Because my child is watching and I love those pieces. I don't want to give too much of the book away because I want people to go get your book. Absolutely. But I think right now where we're living in August, as we're going back to school and there's so much going on with jobs and just a lot of different things do you mind just sharing a few of those strategies of how do we stay calm in stressful situations? Because some of them may seem common sense, but we need someone else. We need to hear someone else say it to us, I think, a lot of times. For sure. And I don't think it gives the book away. Um, but I, <laughs> and I do think it's important because this Absolutely, is, yeah. it's such, there's pile up of stress on stress on stress. You named it. The uncertainties around the coronavirus Who's going back to school? Are they going back to school in what shape or form? We've got job stress and financial stress. I mean, there's everything. Stress is all around us. And I feel really fortunate that for the last 15 years, I've been studying trauma, traumatic stresses, and I've been very, very grateful to work with military families. They know about stress, particularly when a parent mm -hmm. goes off to war and comes back. Um, so one of the things that is so difficult about stress, like the coronavirus, is that it makes us feel powerless, that the uncertainty, the lack of predictability is overwhelming, and it can really disrupt our ability to manage our emotions. But we need to be able to manage our emotions in order to be able to be effective as parents. And we also have a very important role in teaching our children about emotions. And so I talk about how kids learn about emotions by watching us, their parents, and how we deal with our annoyances and worries and frustrations. They also learn about emotions by the way we react to their big emotions. You know, do we say, hey, stop that. Don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Or do we say, honey, you looking, you look, I can see your eyes are downcast and I can see tears in your eyes. And I'm guessing you feel pretty sad or worried. And they also learn about emotions through our discussions about emotions. And many of us don't do that. It's just not something we've learned to actually talk about feelings. And the reason all that is important is because what I, what I want to help parents through is these difficult conversations. Now more than ever, when we're all at home, <laughs> many of us are working from home. Some of us are working from home, but we're all stuck at home. Um, that provides us a special opportunity to have conversations, but it does require us to be able to teach our kids and, and to be able to respond to our kids' big emotions through something I call emotion coaching. And what we know is that the way parents respond to and teach their kids about emotions is really can either help nurture healthy, strong and resilient kids or places kids at risk for anxiety and depression. None of us wanna do the latter, but it's hard to figure out what to do with the emotions. And so what I do is I sketch out a process. I didn't make it up. 
Dr. John Gottman was the one who developed this idea of emotion coaching along with his colleagues. And essentially what it does is it shows parents how a big emotion that a child shows you. Say a child comes, say your, your nine-year-old comes into the house. She's been playing socially distanced with a neighbor and she's very upset because her neighbor just told her that her grandma's in the hospital with the virus. And so your daughter has some expression on her face and that's your first opportunity to look at her face and let her know that you recognize that something's off mm -hmm. by saying, hey, I see your face is scrunched up. You're crying. I wonder if you're sad or worried about something. That tells her you respect her, the look on her face and it's an important signal. Some kids might say, yes, I'm really sad because and tell you all about it. And other kids might say, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then you have to try some mm -hmm. different strategies. And some kids might totally freak you out by saying, "His mom, I'm really worried, is grandma gonna die? And you might have been thinking about this because you might be worried about your own parents or your in-laws. And that's kind of shocking to hear it from your child. So you're gonna mm -hmm. need to take a moment to manage your own emotions here, right? Mm -hmm. so you might say, right. hey, let me go get a glass of water. Let's come to the sit down. So you're dealing with your own emotions and then you're helping your child to identify and label hers and also validate her emotions. So she tells you, I'm really worried about grandma because my friend's grandma's in the hospital. And that gives you an opportunity to say, if that happened to me, I would be really worried too. Or I remember when I was a kid and my friend's mom was really sick and I was so worried that my mom was going to get sick. Mm -hmm. And what that does, of course, is to tell your child that you are seeing that she has feelings and those feelings are really important and you are watching and listening to her. And the process doesn't stop there. Um, I won't. I, I talked already too much about this but <laughs> um but the, what's an important in the next phase is to listen to your child and then help her to find solutions to her worries and or to a concrete challenge she might have which is she misses grandma and she wants to see her and what you'll do is you'll brainstorm ideas for her to worry less and for her to maybe see grandma or be in touch with grandma and it's a brainstorm so she's going to have ideas you're going to have ideas and what you're doing is you're empowering her in the middle of a pretty helpless situation. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's a lot to, lot to, to go through there, but it, it, who knew coaching emotions? I mean, that's just because I think you even said in the book somewhere, I'm not going to do a great job. I'm sure paraphrasing, but it was more about being present and how I think you probably know the stat, but Parents, I mean, like you were saying, we're so busy cooking dinner or getting ready for the next day. How much time are we actually spending? Not necessarily today we're having an essential conversation, although it might be that, but really just actively listening and having engagement with our kids. And so would you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, we're living in such a distracted world. Even before all the, the pandemic and the divisiveness and the sort of angry and hateful rhetoric that sometimes, even before all that, this cell phone, these nasty right. things 
they we're in a world where I mean I remember watching my daughter about four or five years ago before she graduated high school and went off to college sitting on the sofa with a television on her computer in front of her Facebook on one tab the phone with Twitter on another or Instagram mm-hmm. and doing her homework mm-hmm. and I just I thought my goodness how can anybody focus on one thing and we're all doing that I mean how many times do we look around the table and we see my goodness everyone's got their phone and if I'm not careful everyone is going to sit with their phone in front of them but we're eating dinner together right so it really does require parents to say I'm just going to take time no devices no distractions just to listen and have a conversation and you're probably referring to that Mm-hmm. That statistic that I was so shocked to see um, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I think it is, puts out every year, which is the National Time Use Survey, which asks people, how do you spend your day? And then they give them 24 hours and they fill in like, I do this, this, this and this. And they asked anyone who lived in, an, in a, any parent with a child who they live with to do that breakdown. And one of the categories is talking with and listening to children. And across all the people, the average number of minutes spent talking to and listening, talking with and listening to children is three minutes a day. And it's it's probably not a fair thing to say an average because 80 percent of the people said zero. Wow. And the other 20 percent said, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is let's try and make this just 10 minutes a day, not saying you can't do anything else, but talk with your child while you're walking the dog or while you're driving not not where you have to focus on something else or or over dinner but make it your main activity right to find those opportunities in your day to really and, listen mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i think you're right because we we do have so much technology at our fingertips you know i'd notice pre-pandemic when you could actually go out to eat you know I would always notice looking around at families that you know weren't talking to each other they were sitting at tables uh, out to eat and everybody was on their device and nobody was talking to each other and I'm sure we've at some point done that as well but you know I always grew up that the dinner table was an important place to have conversation. Uh, We have lots of conversations in the car, usually on the way home from school, trying to, you know, let me unpack my day kind of thing. And then I find too that at night, uh, my daughter's dyslexic. And so at night when she's laying down, she has so many thoughts in her head and she just needs to sometimes, she needs somebody to hear it. Like she needs to have that conversation. And uh, so I think, you know, just looking like like we were talking about, just looking for those opportunities where in the past it might be, you know, maybe you're at the dinner table and you are, you know, texting back and forth with a coworker, or maybe you're, maybe you're getting ready for bed, but you're checking your emails. And so you're, you're, you're filling your time with things that you think are productive, but also forgetting sometimes to be present. And, and I've done, I mean, I've gone out of the way to make sure when I come into my, when I was working and I wasn't 100% teleworking like I am now, but even now, you know, I put the phone on the charger in the other room. Like, you know, I, I try to do things where it's like a physical reminder for me because I want to make that as a priority. And do I get it right all the time? Well, no, I don't. But, you know, I just try to be, I guess, aware of it and aware of that it's going to be a blink of an eye and she's going to be in college or she's going to be, you know, at her first job. And then I've missed out on the, like you were saying earlier, I missed out on what is she going to say later about the type of 
a family she had was it that everybody was preoccupied with their device which what good does that really do us at the end of the day so but I do know it's so it's so much of our world I mean that's just part of it but it's interesting when you look at some of the research from people like Steve Jobs and people that were very involved in the technology pieces they limited their technology in their home so that's very that's very interesting but it's so very telling. Yes. Yeah, no. And, and it does require, it's so easy for us to get swept away with daily life and doing something like you described, like setting a limit on the device with your child or putting your phone away in another room or making a clear rule that there's no phones around the dinner table that requires you to be in te- us to be intentional. Right. And that's the whole values piece. It's let's think about what's important to us, but we just like no one teaches us to parent, no one says to us, hey, remember to be intentional because this time is going to go so fast. And then in 10 years time, when you're looking at your kids, you're going to say, oh, I really should have done A, B, C, and D. And and I think, you know, as, as I was looking through the different chapters, and I love the way you have it laid out. And we were talking a few minutes ago about coaching emotions, but I also love the piece where, like we said earlier, my daughter didn't come with a book. And so I love that you take time to unpack, uh, I think you call it emotions week. And I love that you give tools for people to say, okay, well, I'm going to do this activity one day, this activity the next day, or if it's on the weekends, but it really does help us as parents figure out how do we start, where do we start and how do we start having those conversations? And like you were saying earlier, just, you know, even being able to call out, well, you look sad or you look something, you're able to call out those emotions as opposed to, oh, it's okay. You know, you're really validating them. And I love that part of, because people may not know how to do that, right? I mean, obviously we're, we're not getting it right. So we don't know, no one teaches us these things unless you happen to have a psychology degree, maybe, but maybe. you know, so yeah, maybe. Right. And so I love the piece of walking families through identifying. Uh, not only identifying your own, we talked about that as an adult, but also helping children to identify those emotions. And I love that you centered around the family. So we're doing those activities together and we're all talking about what it looks like. Right. Which normalizes it. I mean, I love the emotions collage and I have to say not my original idea. One of my colleagues has been doing it for a long time. And it's so fun. You just get to sit and cut cut out pictures of faces, and then to share a story about the face. I think he or she is feeling this. Oh, that's funny because it doesn't look like, I wonder what's been happening, you know, and that makes it such a fun family activity. And you get to talk about emotions in a natural setting as opposed to sort of, how are you feeling right now? (laughs) (laughs) Sit down. We're going to talk about your emotions. Ah, Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I love the one too, you shared about the, I think it was the charades because I thought the part where you said, take a picture. I thought, Oh, how great. Because then if I think that my face says one thing, you're like, no mom, that's not what it looks like. Then you can actually look at your own face to go, Oh yeah, I guess maybe I was, you know, maybe I was thinking about something else when I made that face. So I thought that was a really another great example that you gave as far as just, you know, and, and games that we're used to playing ourselves. Like those are very natural things that we would do. You know, we've made collages before in schools and we've had, you know, we've played games before. And so the examples that you used, I thought were very um, 
you know, it wasn't like go out and, and prepare and do all these things. They were very easy things that you could implement with very little uh, supplies on hand, I guess, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, and thank that's the one good one good thing about phones is they have good cameras. And, you know, yes. when we're learning about emotions, I think understanding what a feeling looks like on a face is really is a really important thing to do for your child. And so that's such an easy thing to do to take a picture and then show it and say, this is what you look like when you, et cetera. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a good part of the book is talking about essential conversations. And I love that you, I think you give like a, let me see if I get this right. I think it's a a, a red light, green light examples with each. And so could you share with us the different types? Like if I'm a, if I'm a mom sitting at home going, well, this sounds very intriguing. I really would like to look into getting this book. Can you give some examples because they're very, very, I mean, it's not like it's only about one particular type of stressor or conflict or trauma. So could you share maybe a little bit of a highlight of the different types of essential conversations that you've included in the book? Sure. So I want, so the second half of the book, as you were saying, is divided into chapters and each chapter focuses on one type of scary world event with many examples in that one chapter. And I was thinking about things that happen beyond our family. Um, Those include violence. And unfortunately, none of us are strangers to violence. And that could be, um, it could be racial violence. It could be school shootings. It could be um, other other bullying, those kinds of things. Um, Another category of scary world events is climate and weather disasters. So we, a lot of kids are really scared of severe weather events. And Mm -hmm. we've had more and more of them. Another chapter focuses on technology. And so uh, within technology, you know, as we've been discussing, it's a blessing and a curse, but we know that the last decade or more has shown a rise in social media bullying. Mm -hmm. Kids seeing things on YouTube and other channels that they shouldn't be seeing uh, because even though we as parents work so hard to shield our kids from scary stuff, we don't always succeed. One of the examples, so any, within each chapter, I have usually five conversations as examples. And within the media, within the technology chapter, um, one of the examples is of a very young child who is in the supermarket with his mom who puts YouTube, the YouTube kids channel on and something horrific has snuck its way into that channel and the child sees it and it's very, and the mom happens to see it. And in the first scenario, which is what I call the red light scenario, mom is like most of us would be, which is totally freaked out. And so she grabs the iPad from the child and the child, and mom doesn't do this intentionally. She's just freaked out. And she does the first thing she can think of to take the thing away, which is to snatch it. And the child gets very upset because he thinks he's done something wrong because she's also sort of talking sharply and because it's taken away from him in a way that she would only do if she was punishing him. And of course, that makes everything worse. Mm-hmm. In the, the green light scenarios that I provide are what I would call the do-overs or the things that we always, that we know we would do if we could just take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. And so in the green light scenario, in this example, mom gives herself a half a second to take a deep breath in and chooses to distract her son with something else 
And while distracting him in a nice way, she removes the iPad. And so he sort of says, hey, but, but then he's distracted by something else. And later on, when they're in the car, she has an opportunity to hear a little bit about what it is he saw. Because remember sometimes that the things young kids see mean can mean very different things to them than they can to us. So that, that example is, uh, the, you know, I can go into a bit more, is uh, the child sees a, a, a suicide happening and or, you know, the result of a suicide. And it's horrifying. And of course, we adults know what a suicide is, but very young children don't. And so how to think about how to even talk about that with the, with a child is a difficult thing. And in the green light conversation, I, I sort of help, you know, I coach parents into what are the kinds of things that you would say to a young child about a scenario like that. That's just one small example. The last two chapters focus on social justice issues, including uh, racial issues, but also issues around poverty um, and um, and the last chapter on divided society focuses on hot political issues like immigration and elections, um, as well as when kids and parents have very different political views and talking about those kinds of things. Uh, and every conversation has the red light version, which is where I just, as a parent, forgot to take a breath. And one of my friends says to me, how did you think of so many red light conversations? And I said, well, I'm a mom too. <laughs> well, it gives you an opportunity too to kind of take a step back and look at both of them and see how they play out. And so your mind, you can start thinking through, although like you said, sometimes you're just in the moment of, but if you have some time to think ahead of time, then you've had some time to process, even if it's not identical your brain may process and say, okay, okay. You can feel yourself getting heated. Let's just take a breath. Like you were saying, let's distract with something else while I have a moment to collect how I want to move forward. And so I love the idea of the, of the red light, green light examples. Cause you know, many times someone will say, this is just the way you should do it. And I love that you actually play out. What does it look like when this is all done with? Like what what's the end result, even though you might not have meant that, like you said, we're all moms. We've all, you know, maybe said things, you know, kind of curt that we didn't mean. And then we had to go back and apologize and say, you know, apologize for that. And it may not even have anything to do with an essential conversation, but we all could see how that could happen. So I I love that it gives us an opportunity to process that ahead of time. So when we have similar situations, we're able to think through those differently, maybe. And I think it's really important to say that these are not in any way, these conversations are not in any way meant to be used as scripts, like word for word. (laughs) The idea sort of towards the, you know, in the first half of the book, what I lay out is a set of principles and steps that then are applied in the conversations in the second half. You know, you might not have a two-year-old who's seen a horrendous, suicide on YouTube, but you might have a nine-year-old who has had some other really, you know, media experience seeing something on television they shouldn't have seen. But but the, the idea is to take the principles of emotion coaching and apply them in these essential conversations. Mm-hmm. And then you added a, a, another part, right? You added a part for COVID? 
I did. I added two uh, bonus conversations, <laughs> the publishers okay. called it. Um, and actually, both those conversations are available for anybody who wants to look at them for free on my website. Um, one was a COVID conversation because as the book was going to press, it was February. And the publisher, I think, wisely said, my editor said, hey, would you be willing to put in a COVID conversation? I'd already been thinking about one for um, for some of our uh, the families that we do research with. And so that's that's in the back of the book. And there's another conversation which um, it's relevant primarily to military families, which is something I've often been asked, which is how do I talk to my child when my spouse has to go away for a long time in the case of the military on a deployment to a war, for example. So those two are both on my, actually, sorry, I take that back. The COVID conversation is on the front page of my website. There's another conversation in my blog section that is how to talk to children about racial justice issues. Okay. okay. And so um, I'm sorry, I can't believe I confuse those, but in, um, you know, obviously in the wake of the horrendous murder of George Floyd right here in Minneapolis, a lot of parents, there's a lot of discussion about how to talk to our children about racial right. injustice. And one of the conversations that it was already, it's it, it's in the violence or social justice chapter in the book, is a conversation between, in this case, it's African-American parents and their black son about uh, the shooting of an unarmed black uh, child mm-hmm. um, in, in, a, in a neighboring town and how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and sort of this idea of the talk and so anyway, that's also on my website that people can just go and take a look at. Okay. And we'll provide links in the show notes too, so people can find those readily, you know, e- easily. All right. So I have just two more quick questions for you. Maybe they'll be quick. I don't know. So um, <laughs> the, the last one is when I ask a lot of people, so it has to do with, with mom. So uh, we'll save that one for last. But one of the pieces, and I've, I've done a little bit of research, but not a lot. So I don't know if you've run across this or not, but with I hear a lot of this from my audience anyway, with children with dyslexia, they seem to have, and I don't know if this is the correct terminology, but it seems like they have like a heightened sense of empathy. Like they feel things, it seems like, and we have this in our household as well. It is so strong. Like my daughter has even said to me, I think my heart is too big. And so is there any additional advice you would give to moms who also have kids that seem to be very sensitive to, I mean, just very empathetic with people, even, um, even, even not even people, but animals or stuffed animals or whatever it might be, but they just had this heightened sense of empathy. Have you seen much of that? I have. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, in my practice, um, when a kid comes in and usually the families I see are families of children who have a lot of anxiety And I describe myself as a feelings doctor. I'm the worry doctor. That's what I say. I'm the worry doctor. Um, So, yes. I mean, and the way we talk about kids who are extremely sensitive, kids, you know, you talked about kids with dyslexia, um, kids who have general anxiety, kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of kids even who don't fall into a diagnostic category. Their gift, you know, the way I like to describe it is, you have the gift of big feelings Mm -hmm. and big feelings can be amazing because you can feel so good and so excited and so happy and so proud. And then you can also feel such big worry and such big anger and such big sadness. And that can be kind of overwhelming. 
Um, and I really like, like to describe it as a gift that, um, and, and, and the reality is that gift sensitivity, like anxiety, is a double-edged sword. It's, it's, it's really an amazing attribute. And when there's too much, it can be totally overwhelming. I think one of the things that kids need, particularly in this era that we're living in, where everything is topsy-turvy and upside down, is they need structure, routine, and as much certainty as we can give them. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is overwhelming about stress and trauma is that we don't have any control over things that happen. You know, we don't know who's going to lose their home in a hurricane or who is going to get really sick of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. That's really unnerving. And for kids who are already sensitive, any one of us who's already sensitive, that can really push us to become very, very frightened and sometimes even paralyzed. Mm -hmm. What we can do as parents is we can say to our kids, here's here's what's going to happen in our home. Like a lot of parents were asking me, they were saying, my kid doesn't have school tomorrow anyway. Why should I give them a bedtime? Why should we keep with our bedtime routine? And my response would always be, now is the most important time to keep all your routines because routines are very comforting for kids. We're all creatures of habit, but kids especially because they have no control over their daily lives, they want to know. They will feel much better if they know what's going on. So you might not know whether school's going to be in person or online, but you can. what can you tell your child? You can tell your child, we do know that you're going to go into fourth grade. We do know that your teacher is going to be Mrs. Smiley. We do know that tomorrow we're going to have a special family dinner. We do know, etc. And that's so and giving and similarly giving kids, empowering kids to do stuff is really, really important. And I just love to give this example. If I if I've got one minute to give it. No, please, yes. I have a, a wonderful, my neighbors are lovely. Um, my, my neighbors over there have a five-year-old and a baby. And in the middle of the summer, coronavirus is hitting. They're playing in the street and their daughter trips over, falls off her bike, trips over and breaks her leg. So this poor five-year-old is in a cast. It's hot and she's miserable. Mm. And at the same time, there's this terrible, this horrendous murder of George Floyd, civil unrest, not one mile away. People have no grocery store. People have no pharmacy because of the looting that took place, the civil unrest and the marches. So she and her mom are talking and she says, I want to help the people who don't have any food. They can't go to the grocery store. And there were a lot of food drives. And so she and her mom cook up a plan. She goes around the garden. Her mom lifts her up and she picks the flowers from the garden and she goes to the neighbors and she sells the flowers. She makes some money and her grandma's so impressed. She says, I'm going to match every dollar that you make. This child raised $800 to buy food. And her mom took her to the grocery store and they bought food and they delivered it. Now that child, boy, sort of talk about feeling helpless with a broken leg in the middle of summer to now feeling you can do something to make Mm -hmm. things better. And that's really so important. It's important for all of us, but particularly to help our children not feel so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. I'm actually very interested to see what this generation of kids look like in 10 or 20 years. I think it's going to be a a different set of kids because they've gone through things that none of us have gone through and they've had to, to, they've had to be flexible and they've had to learn different things and different obstacles. And it just, for an adult, it seems like it's all happening at one time. It just seems like a lot to, to take in. And we know our kids are, they, they do tend to bounce back, quicker than adults do, it seems like. But I just think it's going to be interesting to see how our kids are maybe different. This generation may be different. And and who knows, maybe they will be the ones that completely change how things look. And so it's going to be very interesting to watch them grow up and see, you know, what that chapter looks like. Yeah. So, and I appreciate um, you know, the work that you're doing. I just think it's amazing. So let me ask you this question. What is the best uh, advice that you've received as a mom? I think, okay, this takes me back a long, long time, (laughs) a long time when I was a young mom and a graduate student and my, my family, my own parents and my in-laws were thousands of 5,000 miles away. Um, and someone said to me, the days are long, but the time is short. And I just love that saying. I know it's pretty well known, but it reminded me to seize the moment. And my that little boy then, I'm looking at a picture of him as a baby. He's now 26 years old. And my baby baby is 17. And boy, the time really is short. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful advice to share with us. So I appreciate that. Before we wrap up, can you share where we can follow you and your work? Oh, for sure. And thank you for your nice words. Um, my website is abigailgewertz.com. So that's A-B-I-G-A-I-L-G-E-W-I-R-T-Z.com. There's info about the book, about book events that are coming up, some media stuff, and those two conversations that I told you about, about racial justice and about the coronavirus. Wonderful. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Abby. It was nice to get to know you and talk with you and learn more about your book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. It seems like just the perfect time for everybody to pick that up and and read that. And I also want to just thank you for writing it. Like, it's just so needed. And like I said, we, we don't get an instruction book. And although this is not an instruction book, you know, what better thing to talk about than how to help our kids with their emotions and how to be, you know, successful adults when they're able to, to work through those pieces early on. And so thank you for writing the book. It's, it's, a, it's, it's great. It's amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Nicole. And thank you for giving voice to families who have children with dyslexia. I think it's really an important thing. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'd love to hear what you think about the podcast. So head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, and who knows, you might just hear a shout out on the next podcast. You've got this. I will see you next week. Same time, same place. Go enjoy your day.